Reggie Hudlin is a winner at life. Ah, don't worry about you. You're like Batman. You always win. This is Torrey Show, where the guests stay winning. I'm Torrey, and this show is about me talking to successful people about how they succeeded and what they did right and how they learned their craft and what they know that could help fuel your rise. Today's guest is going to take us inside Hollywood, Reggie Hudlin, a director, writer, and producer who debuted in 1990 with House Party, starring Kid and Play. House Party cost about $2 million to make and became one of the most profitable movies of the decade. Reggie went on to make Boomerang, starring Grace Jones and a young Halle Berry and Robin Givens and the legendary Eddie Murphy. I'm rapping. This is my Mac Daddy vibe I'm giving you in all of its splendor. What's up? Reggie's latest film is Marshall, the story of a case taken on by Thurgood Marshall when he was a crusading young lawyer, years before he ascended to the Supreme Court. It stars Chadwick Boseman as Marshall, Josh Gad, and Kate Hudson. Reggie's next film is Powell, starring Morgan Freeman as Secretary of State Colin Powell during the run-up to the notorious Iraq War. Reggie was also a producer on one of the most extraordinary and controversial films of the modern era, Quentin Tarantino's slavery epic Django Unchained, starring Jamie Foxx, Leonardo DiCaprio, Christoph Waltz, Kerry Washington, and the incomparable Samuel L. Jackson. What's the matter? Why are you so honored? You miss me? Huh? Oh, yes, sir. I miss you like a like a hog miss flop, like a like a, a baby. Miss Mammy Titty. <laughs> I miss you like I miss a rock in my shoe. Reggie tweaked the script with Tarantino and was on set every day, and his advice had a real impact on the film. You know, when Quentin and I talked about the film, I was very clear. I said, we, everything in this movie has to be a two-to-one ratio. Like, for every bad thing that happens to a black person, twice as many bad things have to happen to the enslavers. Mm. You know, so the amount of ass-kicking has to be astronomical. Amen. Reggie's done so much in Hollywood and TV, I don't have time to mention it all. He ran BET for a few years. He's directed episodes of Modern Family, The Office, and many other TV shows. He executive produced the NAACP Image Awards. He produced the Oscars in 2016 when Chris Rock was the host. Reggie's so everywhere that once I said to him, man, remember that old commercial for Hey Love, that soul compilation album where the guy asked to borrow it and the other guy says, no, my brother, you got to go get your own. No, my brother, you got to buy your own. And Reggie says, yeah, I directed that. I was like, well, get out of here. You you kidding? No, no, he's serious. He did that. Reg grew up poor in East St. Louis, the youngest of three boys. In his teenage years, he fell in love with the movies watching Akira Kurosawa, Woody Allen, and a movie called Tommy. And Margaret, the mother. Oliver Reed, the lover. Jack Nicholson, the doctor. Eric Clapton, the preacher. Tina Turner, the acid queen. Elton John, the pinball wizard. Keith Moon, Uncle Ernie. The music, the who. Roger Daltrey, Tommy. Tommy. Your senses will never be the same. The movie that was the straw that broke the camel's back, the one that said, I gotta make movies, was Tommy by Ken Russell. Uh, based on the the uh, rock opera by The Who. Reggie got into Harvard and then got a foot into Hollywood by turning his student short House Party into a movie. 
Now he lives in Beverly Hills and directs the Oscars and is part of the governing board of the Academy. I've been friends with Reg for a long time and I really, really respect his perspective. I went to his place and sat in his living room and talked about what it's like to work on a movie with Quentin Tarantino. He wrote the movie that was on his heart. Django Unchained was on his heart. And when these big movie stars, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jamie Foxx, they read the script and they go, oh, I've always wanted to make a movie like this because they felt Quentin's heart on the page and it, it hit them in their heart. So then they wanted to be in it. So all of a sudden you have this package that a studio can't say no to, even though they desperately want to. And how Reggie got into and out of the dreaded Hollywood purgatory called movie jail. I was in movie jail. What did what what put you in movie jail? Making movies that weren't good. With serving Sarah. Serving Sarah and and then Ladies Man. It's a bunch of movies that like, well, why why does that movie exist? You go, yeah. But we started with this. How do you make it in Hollywood? How did you scale the mountain that is Hollywood? <laughs> well, you know, it starts really early, right? Um, it starts with um, a desire to make stuff for me. And I was a kid. I'm in East St. Louis, Illinois, which is as far away from Hollywood as you can be. I mean, yes, geographically, there are further places. Culturally. But culturally, opportunity-wise, you know, you know, that and Gnome are probably about the same. Um, but I was in a town of great storytellers mm. and great storytelling and amazing things happening. And I was always aware of those and collecting those in my head. Mm. And I remember telling my older brother, Warrington, about ideas for movies that I had while he was in college actually studying filmmaking. So finally, for Christmas one year, he bought me a book with blank pages. And he goes, stop telling me, start writing it down, which is step one, right? Start writing it down. You start writing them down. How do you go from there to acquiring the skills to be a filmmaker? Well, part of it is just literally studying film. Um, very early on, I, of course, I was watching whatever was popular at the time, whether that was James Bond or black exploitation movies or kung fu movies. And then, you know, when do you start going to the next level? Um, there used to be a series, a couple of series on PBS where they would, they would show the Criterion Collection, which is basically the equivalent of the, the great novels, right? So you would see Kurosawa, uh, you would see Truffaut, stuff like that. So you start watching subtitled films at home on your own time. That's the next level of interest. As a teenager? Yes, as a, as a teenager. So I'm learning the difference between o, uh, Ozu and Kurosawa uh, to the point where when I actually got to Harvard, uh, I remember the Harvard Crimson, there was a headline that Edward O. Runshower had retired. And I was like, oh, Edward O. Runshower, the host of the Japanese film? <laughs> you mean he taught here and he's retired before I could take his class? I was very heartbroken because I had learned so much from him. Um, so you can, you can just do that. 
Uh, I remember, in fact, it's funny that we're here in my library. When I first moved into this house, you know, it was almost nothing here, right? But you have your bookshelf and you had books. So Chris Rock was here. So he's walking around. He's looking at all the books that are on the shelf. And he sees a copy of Without Feathers by Woody Allen. Now, he, now, Without Feathers, I mean, to read a Woody Allen book, you really got to be into Woody Allen. I mean, you've got to see so many Woody Allen movies that you go to the next level. So he looks at and he goes, wow, that's a really old copy of Without Feathers. I said, yeah, I bought it in high school. He goes, fuck you. <laughs> Why fuck you? It was a huge compliment because it's like he's acknowledging that you were that into Woody Allen, that you read the book by the time you were in high school. So God knows how many Woody Allen movies you had seen to drive you to actually buy a Woody Allen book. That's mm -hmm. not a normal thing mm -hmm. for anyone. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's just where I was as a kid. I remember when Monty Python and the Holy Grail came out and seeing that, and then they start showing Monty Python on PBS and having to adjust my ear to understand English uh, spoken by people from Britain, yeah. you know? So just that extra effort of not only absorbing Richard Pryor and Red Fox and Godfrey Cambridge and all that, but, you know, to go beyond your culture, to understand it as an art form, to understand comedy, to understand cinema, just to go to that next level. So by the time you get to college, you know, you've got s some kind of base level, both of an understanding of your own culture and an understanding of other cultures. Mm. So, okay, you're building the library in your mind, the foundation, mm -hmm. right? The, mm -hmm. the imagination, mm -hmm. um, or the fruits, uh, or the thing, the seeds for the imagination. Mm -hmm. um, are there are there a couple of films that you can say? Okay, these films really propel me. Say, I want to do that. Well, actually, that that happened in middle school and high school as well. I mean, I think the movie that was the straw that broke the camel's back, the one that said, I got to make movies, was Tommy by Ken Russell, uh, based on the the uh, rock opera by The Who. Okay. Because uh, I just remember uh, Elton John had gotten really big at that time. Uh, so he was in a movie. So you go, oh, what's that movie? And it looked, sh I mean, he's basically, I think Tommy doesn't get enough credit as a forerunner of MTV. Right. Everyone talks about the Beatles and Heart Days Night as they should. But I would give at least as much credit to the who and Tommy. But what about Tommy made you as a young person say, I want to direct? Well, it was so visually audacious. Ken Russell. I mean, he's a wild man and he really brought the songs and the ideas to life. I uh, had this big Jesus metaphor, had all this great stuff in it. So, and it was hard to get to. I remember having to catch two buses and cross a highway divider to get to a movie theater that was showing Tommy, right? <laughs> At what age? I don't know. I, I, I Young. Yeah, young. Middle school. Yeah. So, uh, I, I remember because I, I, when I... Sh when I told my friend Pierre, Pierre Paradise, that's his government name, I, I told Pierre, I got the Tommy soundtrack. He goes, no, you didn't. 
and I had to go and pull it out and show him. And to buy a double album, to buy a double album by a white rock artist, I mean, that was a huge deal. That was very transgressive. And it was like, oh, you really did it. But your desire to be immersed in film yes. was, was deep. Well, well, the thing is, here's the thing what Tommy did for me. I was like, I'm going to make that movie about George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic. Mm, wow. Like, the thing I love as much as these guys love The Who, like, you just showed me a blueprint for how it can be done. Mm. Now, I still haven't made that movie yet. And I feel like that it's God just moving the cheese, right? <laughs> like, no, 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 you can't retire yet. Because once you do that, you may just walk away. <laughs> so we're going to keep keep you making other stuff. I mean, you know George. I, yes. Is, is this a possibility? No, George is not the problem. I mean, I've, uh, you know, I, I had it set up, I mean, very early on after House Party. And the studio was like, why do you want to make a movie about your buddy George? It's like, my buddy. It's not my buddy. It's George he's, Clinton. He's a foundation of music. What a are you musical talking icon. about? Yeah, I mean, it's just like, you wouldn't say that about Springsteen. You know, you can't compare him to Springsteen. I'm like, yes, you're right. I can't. Right, because he's greater than Bruce That's Springsteen. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> you're talking about. So uh, they were, I mean, th- those were the really, really frustrating years in Hollywood where there was this, this giant cultural gap in terms of Hollywood not understanding black culture. And that's only really changed in the last two or three years. I mean, that's a very recent development. Well, your brother told me a story once. I would assume that you were in the room that mm-hmm. you guys or the way he told, I believe he said he, but middle passage. Yes. That you guys were pitching middle passage mm-hmm. and the executive was like why would the slaves want to be free there were many crazy <laughs> conversations about middle passage <laughs> I would, there was another executive who says well you know slavery is not really a big thing in people's minds i mean that's not a well-known part of history i mean so <laughs> you know, when you're in a moment like that uh-huh you're trying to get money and mm-hmm. access and green light out of a person they say something super ignorant like that right but there's a very small number of gatekeepers right and like your deepest blackness has been offended mm-hmm. but you're still trying to get the deal mm-hmm. what what do you do at a moment like that well it, it, it depends i mean usually at that point you're you're the you're not the movie's not moving forward with that person. Like you're, the deal's not going to happen. So what you can, all you can really do at that point is educate. And I say educate because yeah, it's easy to curse somebody out, but that's not moving the ball. Then it's about you and your attitude as opposed to them realizing that they just said something ignorant. And, you know, um, or, you know, is there something nefarious going on? I remember, when Eddie Murphy had hired us to do Boomerang. And this studio really did not want us to be, you know, directing their the crown jewel of, of, of the studio. So we're sitting there having this meeting. He goes, I just don't know how you're going to make a romantic comedy with Eddie Murphy. I mean, he's got those broad nose and big lips. And we were like, wow, you just said that in front of us. I mean, it was like, you know, that in V where they take off the mask and they eat the rat in front of you. You just go, okay, 
the veneer of, you know, liberal tolerance is gone. Like the stakes are so high that you're just going to say it to us. And, and w- so what do you do there? Well, here's the thing, because, you know, my brother and I had to have a conversation with no words instantaneously. Right. Because we realized what was really happening was he wanted us to be fired. So the point was for us to punch him. He was trying to provoke you? I think. That's what we both separately concluded. That was a deliberately provocative statement to create cause to remove us from the project. So the point was, you're not the goal. The goal is to make this movie. We have the job. You're trying to get us off the job. So ignore you because you're irrelevant. I mean, because he wasn't the power. Eddie Murphy was the power. So don't get distracted, distracted by someone who's not the power. I mean, again, it's all depending on the circumstances. This is where, you know, chestnut checkers kicks in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a lot of that in Hollywood, isn't there? Yeah, but, I, you know, I, again, I've only really worked in this industry. But, I, you know... Uh, I don't know if other businesses are more straightforward or not. Uh, but I, I think, you know, there's a lot of challenges um, in, you know, in, its, in, you know, operating at a high level in America, right? Um, yes, I think it's more complicated in the arts. I mean, I think that's, you know, because... Uh, I think music may be one of the rare exceptions because sure. at least there is a tradition of acknowledgement that, yeah. well, black people did build this thing, this yeah. whole Chuck Berry thing. That's not a joke. We all know what that is. Yeah. But, uh, you know, whether it's high art or whether it's movies, there's this kind of, well, we don't really need you type attitude, right? Mm. So, um, you know, and it's, and, it, and it's abstraction, right? There's, you know, again, just recently – can we actually have the historicals to prove our point where you go, no, 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 no. Black films overperform black films, cross over black films, trample internationally, but it's taken my entire adult career to get those numbers. Let's, right, so let's go back to the beginning mm-hmm. of your career. Um, how did you get house party made? Mm-hmm. Well, first, mm-hmm. how did you, how did you make House Party? Because mm-hmm. um, you and your brother Warrington make it together. Did you did you write a script and then send it out and then pitch it out, or how does it happen? It started uh, as a, I was a studying film at Harvard, and I'm preparing for my senior thesis. So the summer before, I'm working all summer to raise enough money to finance the movie, and I'm working on a script. And I'm writing, writing all summer. And I think I have the script I want. So it's the li- and when you're when you're conceiving this, mm-hmm. are you thinking about this sounds commercial, a movie about going to a party, or you th- no, no, I'm not working on house party. I'm working on a, a a different idea altogether. Okay, okay. And what my brother had said was, whatever you do, it has got to be ten minutes of something that is as good as anything. Right. So you can put your 10 minutes against any 10 minutes of any movie in the world and it will be good because that's the most attention you'll get from anyone is 10 minutes. So it better be good. So I've been working on this idea all summer uh, and then I'm packing because I'm going back to college 
and the radio's on and Bad Boy Having a Party by Luther Vandross is on. And at the time, there really weren't black music videos. Mm -hmm. So as an exercise, I would create music videos in my head. So I'm thinking about what a music video for that song would be. And then I thought, you know, that's not just a good video. That's a good movie. So basically that night, in the next two days, I just wrote the script. After spending all summer writing a script, this other script comes like a lightning bolt. Boom! Two days. Yeah. And, you know, there's something about an idea that comes that cleanly and it has a power to it. And part of that was the muscle of having written all summer. So writing the first one helped you write the second one quickly and clearly. Yes, because I had done all this where I had done all these push-ups. So then this other thing could just come and your imagination was in, you know, in fit to solve all the problems really cleanly. Interesting. So I had the script. So now I had two scripts, right? And, and I just, you know, had a preference for the one that was the boat from the blue. Because, of course, it's just something magic about that one. Yeah. So that became House Party. Um, so I shot that as my senior thesis film. And uh, so it's 20 minutes long. And everybody really likes it. Not with kid and play. No, no. This is just some local kids in Cambridge. And I just, you know, put out a casting call, go to Cambridge Ridge and Latin, a couple other schools, and get a bunch of kids, and we just make this movie. Uh, and again, it's a little 20-minute movie. I mean, most of the key beats that are in the feature are also in the short film. I like the ending's the same, stuff like that. Uh, so it's my first time making a movie, and, you know... Things happen, and like where you know, I just have to beg for everything. You got to beg for locations for free. The actors are working for free. The crew's working for free. Uh, I mean, at one point, you know, they rebel. I have to like, I I can't just bring them peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I have to go buy Church's chicken, you know, to stop uh, a, a, a cast or crew revolt. <laughs> where did you get the money for all this? Yeah, exactly. You don't got that. I got church of chicken money. I'm <laughs> just some college student. Again, I had saved up. Uh, my brother had lent me some money. So I just had this little bit of money to make this little movie. But it wasn't a lot. Okay. Um, so <laughs> we, make the, we make the short film. And I didn't do a bunch of film festivals and stuff because – I knew that was kind of a racket, right? You know, you 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 know, you spend all this money. So instead, I'm just showing it at, at different. Uh, I mean, the Black Filmmaker Foundation, which Warrington had founded, you know, would do this thing every summer where they would take a bunch of Black and independent films and show them in different boroughs. So uh, we were showing House Party and Joe's Best Side Barbershop. Re- cut heads spikes spike lee's student film right so we show them together as a double feature right and uh were you friends with spike at that point i knew spike uh again uh, i met him at some of the early black filmmaker foundation conferences uh i saw his first film the answer which he had made at, uh in his first year at nyu film school so i knew of him and i knew uh so we show the movie and people just love House Party. And there was a junior executive there from New Line Cinema. So she saw the film and brought it to the attention of New Line. And I showed them both scripts because at that point, um, 
they're because of the success of of um, she's got to have it. Spike's first movie. There was kind of a buzz about you know. Well, are there other black filmmakers, right? I remember there was this party at Nelson George's house, mm-hmm. and Russell Simmons was there, and Russell was getting ready to make Tougher Than Leather, a Run DMC movie, right? And I was begging him for a shot to direct the movie. And he goes, no, my partner's going to direct the movie. But apparently he said later, some kid from Harvard thinks he can direct a movie about hip hop. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and Spike's there. And he said he had a meeting with A&M Films. Like the, uh, the record label A&M had a film division. And they wanted to make a movie uh, about Oz Redding sitting at the dock of the bay. So he said he passed, but he had told me about it. So I was like, oh my God, thanks so much, Spike. So he actually went, he left the party for a minute, got the script, brought it to me, had a phone number. He said, call these people. So I don't know anything about Hollywood. I call them the next day on Sunday. Like, well, you know, maybe somebody's there. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So they finally call me back on Monday and I'm so excited. And they go, well, we're not going to do the Otis Redding movie but we want to do a movie with Janet Jackson and the time. Cause at the time Janet Jackson just had the control album. That was really hot. And of course time had come off purple rain, jungle love, all that. So they are like, let's pair them together. I'm like, I'm in. So they fly me to LA, um, to have my first meeting. So I, you know, we do this deal for me to write a script and possibly direct this movie. Wait a minute. How did, a Harvard student mm-hmm. get a deal. I mean, like, were you in the room, like, selling them on who you are? Like, how does that? Because that's a leap. That's a leap. Well, one of the producers uh, was George Jackson. George George Jackson and and, and, and McHenry. Uh, George went to Harvard. He was a few years ahead of me, and he had already gone to Hollywood and kind of made a name for himself as a producer. You know, he made Crush Groove and. You know, so and he remembered me from back then. He saw my short film, so he said, "Well, let's hire this kid." Okay, so you had that that one connection. That one connection, and I remember having the meeting, and the A and M offices are in the old Charlie Chaplin Studios. So I'm sitting in a screening room that was Charlie Chaplin's old screening room. So I'm like, "This is amazing," and there's an agent there, and she's from CAA, and she's interested in representing me. No, I did not know what the letter C-A-A meant. <laughs> but, but, I also, but I knew she said she also represented A&M, which were the people I was going to be negotiating against. And that seemed to me that if you're representing both sides in the negotiation, it wasn't going to work out for me. <laughs> so I passed on that. You knew that right away. I, I look, I, you know. <laughs> I don't know much, but I knew that was that doesn't smell right. No, so and um, so anyway, so I get this deal, and and I had never written a feature-length screenplay in my life. Um, uh, I mean, if you added up all the term papers I'd ever written, I don't think they would have added to to 120 pages. I, I, this was this deal for you to make House Party, or no, for you just you? This make is for a, the Janet Jackson Time movie. Make a movie with Janet Jackson and Morris Day in them. Yes, that whatever it is, just you figure that out. That's a tremendous amount of freedom. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. So I came up with a pitch. And what was the, like, what was the budget they were talking about? Oh, I don't know. 
budget? What? I'm getting just a job. All of that, I can't imagine. So I'm excited. I'm writing, and I'm just writing, writing, writing. And I turn the script, and the script's too long. It's a mess. And Dale Pollack, who was the executive there, very kindly took his time, explained three-act structure to me, which I didn't know. And we cleaned up the script. So it it went from awful to bad, you know, which was very kind of him. So the movie doesn't happen. But now I've got all this money, which is just an incredible amount of money for me. How much? Uh, I don't remember, but it was a lot. I mean, again, Warren and I are sharing an apartment on 149th and Broadway. And I'm like, I got all this money. You're like, what can I do? I said, I could buy a car with this money. But if I buy a computer, which at that time cost about as much as a car, right? <laughs> if I buy a computer, I can make more money. So I buy a computer. And with the leftover money, I said, you know what? I'm going to eat in a nice restaurant sometimes. And if it's late, I'm not going to take the train. I'm going to take a cab. <laughs> okay. So Balling. I'm doing it. I'm big time. I'm big time. So I, I, with this computer, I write on spec the script for House Party. So then when people say, well, you know, who are you? What are you doing? I said, well, I want to do this. So I send New Line the spec script for House Party once they have some interest in me. And they go, well, we like this. And then that goes into development. Had you sent it to 100 people? No, no. Well, yes. I mean, House Party, we did shop around and no studio was interested. I mean, what I was told was, you, you know what people don't like? Teen movies and black movies. You have a black teen movie. There is nothing about this that people want to see. But when you're getting all these rejections, mm-hmm. what in you says keep going? Well, I mean, again, the the power of ignorance is incredible. I, I remember my first week at Harvard. In uh, that first week, there was a like on the day two or something, you meet the president of the university, and everyone who goes there has the same outfit on. They have khaki pants, a blue blazer, white shirt, and either a red or yellow tie. There's there's the everyone in the room except for me. Because I'm fresh out of East St. Louis. So I got this all-white suit on with a collar flipped up, this knit tie that's kind of pulled loose, kind of Miami Vice style. It's, it's 1979, 1980. It's full Vice time. So I walk in the room, and I see everyone else wearing the blue blazer and the khaki pants, and I go, man, nobody here knows how to dress but me. <laughs> The idea that I'm wrong does not occur to me. <laughs> so That's just how you were living at that time. I'm like, there's no doubt. I'm, look at me. I'm fly. That you said no is bad on you. That doesn't mean anything. Right. So, yeah, I mean, they just don't get it. So, and so again, this is the, I mean, there's a reason why the Wright brothers, who had a bicycle shop, figured out how to make a plane. Right? Because the scientists said flight's impossible. The guys in the bicycle shop who said, nah, I think you can make a plane. So the power of ignorance cannot be underestimated. Mm. If you talk to most successful people, you say, well, how'd you do that? They go, man, if I knew how hard it was, I would have never tried it. So, you know, you just have to go for it. I mean, Colin Powell says battlefield decisions are made with 40% information. And I think, I mean, okay, 
Here you are, life and death. People are shooting at you. And there's more you don't know than what you know. But you got to do something. Mm. So these are all, so just, you know, just do stuff. Right, right. So, uh, so house party, they, they buy it, we develop it. And, uh, and again, I was like, you know, and I'd seen these guys uh, can play in music videos. I knew this girl who worked with their management company. They said they were nice guys and they show up on time. So I say, let's cast them. And, uh, you know, the studio said yes. That's dope. Boomerang yes. is a step up for you. Oh, yeah. Because House Party does well, mm-hmm. right? House Party makes over 10 times. It's one of the most profitable movies of its decade. What did it make? Uh, it, it cost two and a half. Two and a half ma- million. Yeah, it made like 26, 27. And that's just domestic. Not counting international. Not ca- I mean, I'll put it this way. I remember... Friday, the Friday night at Open, we all went out with a bunch of executives at the company. One of the execs had a little too much to drink. And he said, we're in profit. I go, what do you mean? He says, well, the movie cost two and a half. We sold it to Showtime for two and a half. We sold the home video rights for two and a half. And we're going to make four and a half this weekend. So we've covered the production costs, the marketing costs, everything. We are now in the green. So that's just the Friday night it opened. So it went on and, you know, and sequels and there's a comic book. There's a Saturday morning cartoon. It was a huge hit. So Boomerang takes you to the next level. Yeah. Boomerang takes me to the next level. Um, Get a call from Eddie Murphy. He goes, I like you guys go for the joke. I like you guys. And let's figure out a movie. Now, this is unbelievable to me because... I just I like Eddie Murphy was on Saturday Night Live and I still had a bedtime. I, I just understand how we were the same age. <laughs> it didn't make sense to me. So I had never imagined I would work with a, a star of his caliber. Uh, and we just are pitching ideas back and forth. And then finally he sends me this script for Boomerang. And the script isn't that great, but the premise is fantastic because it's just a romantic comedy. Like it's a Rock Hudson Doris Day movie. And I just go, boy, that's exactly what people really want to see. You know, that black folk doing good, doing well, you know, dealing with our lives and our problems. Uh, I, you know, obviously there was a, a bunch of movies that were very kind of explicitly political driven. Uh, I, and I like to zig when people zag. So just making a movie that was just... Uh, reflective of our best selves seemed like a great idea. That's big for you. You mm-hmm. typically want to make us look like our best selves. Uh, you're not going to do the gritty life is difficult, you know, for black. You're going to do, you know, like Boomerang, you know, everybody looks beautiful. House party, like every, you know, mm-hmm. they're they're not... It's not, you know, they're not struggling. You know, they're they're trying to get to a party. They're good kids trying to, you know, trying mm-hmm. to, li- you know, like that. Mm-hmm. That seems to be a constant, yeah, theme for you. Yeah, I mean, because it's like, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, there's certain uh, stories that I think are overtold, and I mean, I think on both a business level, like te- 
make the movie that people want to see that no one else is making mm. because people will be excited to see something different, to see what they don't necessarily even know they want until you give it to them. And then they're really grateful. And also as a, as a citizen, um, I just feel like it's very easy to define black life in terms of suffering and struggle and failure. And that's not my life. And it's not a class thing. I mean, growing up in East St. Louis, East St. Louis is rough, rugged and raw, but we were all about trying to do better, trying to do our best selves. I mean, any successful person for me, St. Louis has this kind of tobacco road fantasy of like, you know, we're going to make it out of the, uh, out of East St. Louis. We're going to become successes, come back, tear this city down and build it over anew. You know, that's what we dream about. So if we're in the dream factory, we should be in the business of putting our dreams on screen. So our dreams can come true. Mm, mm. Um, Okay, I want to leap ahead a little bit, mm-hmm. partly because you made Serving Sarah, but there is a long period mm-hmm. between Boomerang and the next film you, well, excuse me, between Serving Sarah mm-hmm. and the next film you direct. It's like over yeah. like 15 years between pictures. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, whatever. Right? Yeah. Something like that? Yeah, it, I can't remember exactly, but it's a long time. Why is that? Well, I mean, the thing was there, was, there was a couple of things. One is at a certain it was tough not just for me, but for our whole kind of generation of black filmmakers. Uh, because you know, we grew up watching the filmmakers of the 70s who made a series of personal films. Mm-hmm. And Hollywood in the 80s and 90s was shifting out of the personal film business and they were getting into the product business. And it was hard for all filmmakers trying to do personal work, but especially true for black filmmakers. Just so folks understand fully what you're talking about, how, how, do you, how are you defining what is a personal film versus a product film? I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it's... <clears throat> What happens in Hollywood, you have a success, you make a movie like House Party, which I wrote and directed, right? So that's very personal. But even a movie like Boomerang, which I didn't write, but it really resonated with me personally. I felt a, a deep personal connection to it. Yeah. And, uh, so then they say, look, here's this script. Uh, we can't seem to make it work. But if you, you know, but you're a really talented person and you can make, you could make this work. And we'll give you a lot of money. And you go, well, I'd rather make this movie, which is I'm more connected to. Well, we have no interest in telling that movie. You know, we're not, that's a stunt story we care about. So either you can make this movie we're offering to you or you can not work. <laughs> <laughs> so you go, at a certain point, you go, well, you know, I, I do like my house and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so you go to work, right? That's what you do. And so you make movies that you are a little less connected to and you don't find a way in to make it yours or the the working circumstances are such that you can't take ownership of it. And that is a really bad situation because when it's, uh, you know, to really do the job in the best possible way, you have to own it, Mm. right? 
And I don't necessarily externalize blame for that. It's also my fault as a filmmaker. You can't give up on owning something, you know, if you're doing the job. If you take the job, for whatever reasons you take the job, then you've got to own it 100%. And uh, over the years, I've learned to manage working with producers, working with studios, working with stars in a way that um, I'm better at doing that than I was when I was younger. Well, so, I mean, talk about how you are managing people and working interpersonally in that mm -hmm. way. Yeah, I mean, look, when you, when you do a movie like Ladies' Man, right? I mean, that's part of Lorne Michaels, and Lorne Michaels has a machine, and obviously in the world of television, the director is a lot less important than in movies. So... You know, he and his, you know, you know, uh, there's so you're really making a group project where the writers and the producers and the studio uh, all have a lot to say. And so that was a tough working environment. Now, there are people who love that movie. I mean, there's a who co-group of young people like, oh, my God, ladies, man, that movie was stupid, Reggie. <laughs> and they love it. So I'm really glad when I talk to people who love it, but I don't feel a personal connection to that movie like I do with A House Party or a Boomerang. Mm -hmm. And it's not as successful. And I think Ultra Ness because I was not as profoundly connected to it. Mm. Um, so you part of coming out of this period of not working that much or not directing that much because you were you were working you're directing tv mm -hmm. you're at bet you're doing different things mm -hmm. but so you start working on django unchained mm -hmm. which is you know one of the great movies of the last you know 20 years mm -hmm. what have you how did that even start well i mean it's funny cause i'm actually want to go back to the other part that that Appeared in the desert or whatever, Please. right? Which is, the fact is, at a certain point I realized I'm better off directing good TV shows than bad movies. Mm. And spending three years working as a uh, director and a producer on Bernie Mac was fantastic. You know, Bernie Mac's a great show. And, and you know, uh, we had a great time in... Believe me, spending those years with Bernie Mac, particularly since he's not with us, I really value that time I spent with him. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot to, to learn directing that much, directing as much television as I have. I mean, first of all, uh, it, it improves your muscle in terms of directing fast. I mean, Larry Wilmore, who was the executive producer of the Bernie Mac show, he gave an amazing piece of advice to me. He said, Reggie, if you're shooting and you're running out of time and you have to make some hard choices, shoot the more interesting angle. Now, that's a very empowering thing for someone to say. And what Larry said that to me, which is, you know, don't shoot it conventionally. Do, you know, do something cool. And, you know, that's a very empowering thing. So, Working, working in a lot of different television shows, seeing the different styles at which different creative people work, because how they run Modern Family is different from how they run The Office, which is different from, you know, how you run Are We There Yet, right? So you get to work with all these really, really brilliant people, and you see their different writing styles, you work with different writers, and you work with all these different actors. So it, you actually learn a lot. Very often, directors, you just work in your own camp. 
and you don't get to see how how other people do it. Mm. So that was enormously informative to me. Then becoming an executive was also incredibly informative. At BET. Yes. Uh, I think that everyone should switch jobs for like a couple of years. You were the president for how many years? For three and a half years. And, you know, so suddenly you're on the other side of the desk and you're talking with creative people. You're dealing with um, advertisers. You're dealing with all these other issues that you don't deal with when you're just making your one creative product. And... It made me a much better partner as a producer and director, having been an executive, because now I understood the executive mindset. You understand what you look for in a creative partner. So it, so now as I'm back in my primary job as a creative person, I understand what they need and I understand that the most important thing is to be as creative as possible. The fact is, they don't want you to be a suit. They want you to be super creative. They just want you to be responsible. And those two things are not in contradiction. So all, all those times doing all those other jobs made me a much better filmmaker. Much, much better filmmaker. So then when the opportunity for Django came along, I mean, it was the exact right project at the exact right time. Now, Quentin and I have been friends for many, many years. And uh, he was a big fan of Cosmic Slop, which is this uh, sort of special I did for HBO. And you know, whenever he would have a, a, a rough cut of a new movie or a new script, he would invite me, and I'd read the script or I'd see the rough cut and give notes. And he's part of. A, I became part of a small circle of friends he has to, when he, you know, he's testing his new product. So he he invited me over to his house because he had a new script. And he goes, you planted the seed, and this is the tree. And, right, you plant you planted the seed in a discussion. Years before, like over 10 years ago, he and I had been at this Oscar party, and we got into this conversation about slave movies. And I was saying how I hate pretty much all of them. Because to me, there was only one great movie about slavery, and it was called Spartacus. And until you had a movie about the an American experience that was as satisfying as Spartacus, just don't bother. And, and we went back and forth about it. And then I said, look, you at least got to be as good as Fred Williamson in The Legend of Nigga Charlie. And he was like, I have nothing to say to that. I go, I know. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's tough to win a debate with Quentin because he's really smart and he's really well read he's he's seen every movie so it it, 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 it it was really great and i just thought that was a, just another fun exchange with quentin like we have all the time i didn't think anything of it but it probably made a real impression on him to the point where it really informed him writing this project which i didn't know about at the time which became django unchained uh, so he gave me the script to read i read it and uh, he goes, uh, what you think? I go, I love it, man. I, I'm so glad you're getting back to work. Can't wait to see the movie. I'm excited as a fan. And he goes, do you have notes? I go, well, of course. So I give him my notes. He goes, oh, those are really good notes. And I said, okay, cool. I'm glad I'm helpful. He goes, well, look, uh, we want you to you know, be on the movie as a producer. I'm like, well, what, what, what are you talking about? 
Because now I've talked with Harvey. I've talked Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein. You know, I've talked with the other producers. Everybody wants you on board. And you just realize there's a thing happening and you're the last person to find out what the thing is. And all you can do is block the blessings. It's happening. So I go, look, if you want me on board, I'm in. Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's get to work. So from that point on, I worked on Django every day for the next two years. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. What did you learn about filmmaking working side by side with Quentin Tarantino? Well, I mean, Quentin is a genius. I mean, he's the only person I know who as he's as good as a writer as he is a director, as good a director as he is a writer. And most people are left or right-handed, so to speak, right? They're, they're, they have a, you know, they're better at one of those two jobs. I've never been with someone who was equally good, and that was amazing. He also creates an environment 
where the only language to talk about it is creatively. You can't talk about commercial concerns. You can't talk about whether it's something's politically correct or not. Like that's not how you get traction with him. So, you know, when you're having a debate about the movie, you just have to talk about the movie and what's the best storytelling. And that's an incredible environment to work in. Now, it's not that he doesn't factor in all those other things, but when you put the creative first, all the other stuff sorts itself out. And, you know, to, you know that kind of freedom, that kind of uh, devotion, and he puts together a cast and crew of people who are as passionate as he are. So no one's there punching a clock. You're there because you love it. And I was like, God, this is a great environment. Now, you know, making House Party was like that. Making Boomerang was like that. And, you know, you go, well, this is the environment you want every time. You want to make movies under these circumstances. So, uh, and the entire time we were making the movie, Quentin just kept going, you know, uh, you know, go make a movie. <laughs> like, yes, I'm glad you're here, but you should be making movies. Particularly since he would have these screenings every weekend. He would bring a print from his collection and we, we'd show like the original print of Mothra or, you know, or Return to Macon County, you know, some B or C movie. And suddenly two or three Oscar winners were all sitting around debating the merits of this movie. And so it's just like this incredible supergraduate course in film school. And we had, it was such an invigorating experience, this, this pure love of cinema. And, you know, I would, so I was constantly coming up with different movie ideas. And you just go, oh, God, Reggie, just go, please make the movie. Just, you know, um, and, and Jamie Foxx separately was also like, Reggie, what are you doing? You know, please get back behind the camera. You know, so the two of them just really being super encouraging for me to, you know, go back to work. What else are you learning about filmmaking watching him do his thing? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, on one hand, he, at this point in his career, has incredible resources, right? Um, but again, it's not about the stuff. I mean, at the same time we were making Django, they were making the Lone Ranger movie. And I think the whole budget for Django was the special effects budget for Lone Ranger. So <laughs> there are bigger movies being made, right? It's all about the story and the character. And, you know, his absolute fidelity to that uh, was really inspiring. Uh, and, and, you know, and again, this is a movie the same way uh, they said no one wants to see a black teen movie, right? And no one wants to see a black romantic comedy. You know, Quentin, we would meet with studios and, you know, Quentin would leave the room and they go, you know what people don't want to see? Black movies and Westerns. You're making a black Western. No one wants to see this, right? Cut to a movie that makes half a billion dollars. So once again, the experts are wrong. Mm. At two and a half million dollars, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what cast you have, whatever it is. These, you know, you can't drive forward looking in a rearview mirror. 
Mm. You know, if you want to make derivative movies, you can do that. But if you're actually trying to raise the game and do things that are innovative and things that, uh, you know, bring audiences out in droves, then you have to take creative risk. Mm. And because he wrote the movie that was on his heart, Django Unchained was on his heart. And when these big movie stars, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jamie Foxx, they read the script and they go, oh, I've always wanted to make a movie like this because they felt Quentin's heart on the page and it, it hit them in their heart. So then they wanted to be in it. So all of a sudden you have this package that a studio can't say no to, even though they desperately want to. <laughs> even though they desperately want to. Um, it was hard at times, though. I mean, you're dealing with difficult subject matter. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, every movie's hard. I mean, I mean, I was excited to, I mean, you know, make a movie about this, but to make this type of movie, you know, because most movies about slavery are just literally, it's some version of torture porn. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when Quentin and I talked about the film, I was very clear. I said, we, everything in this movie has to be a two to one ratio. Like for every bad thing that happens to a black person, twice as many bad things have to happen to the enslavers, mm. you know? So the amount of ass kicking has to be astronomical. And I remember, um, we were shooting the scene when, um, Django finds the, uh, the overseers that had beaten him and kidnapped and sold his wife. Uh, so he's there in his blue outfit and they're about to whoop this other slave and he doesn't just kill them. He takes the whip and whips them with one arm until that arm gets tired. Then he switches hands and whips them with the other <laughs> hand and then finally finishes them off with a gun. Right. And so we had a visitor that day, Kenny Leon, the Broadway director. He was there visiting Sam Jackson. So I said, oh, come to set. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good day today. So he's watching the scene. He goes, Reggie, you said he was going to whip him, but you didn't say it was going to be this. I go, I know, right? He goes, can this come out tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> How many takes is that? How many times is Jamie whipping this man? Oh, over and over. It was a lot. <laughs> And Quentin wouldn't say action. He would go, whip his ass. <laughs> and, and Jamie, being the classy guy he is, whenever he called cut, he would drop the whip and go to the actor and go, you okay? Did I hurt you? And help, help lift him up. Every time. Every time. Jamie's humanity was extraordinary in that instance and throughout the movie. And... It, it, it was just one of those things where you just go, where here's where everyone's heart is. I mean, you know, when Quentin shot the scene where Kerry Washington's character got whipped, I remember, I mean, Kerry gives an extraordinary take, right? And after the end of that first take, I look up and I see Quentin, I find his eyes and I go over to him and he's literally, his eyes are just full of water. He's literally filled up the eyepiece of the lens with tears. So everyone's here for the right reasons, doing the right thing. Mm. You know, I have no doubt who we all are and what we're doing here. It was a beautiful, beautiful experience. Mm. So when I look at it, and, and the funny thing is um, 
uh, there was a lot of people going, oh, how could you, you know, make a movie about slavery and work with Quentin? I'm like, I stand next to this man any day. What's your problem? And when they saw the movie, everyone was like, oh. Oh, that's that's it? Not uh, I was wrong and I'm sorry? Uh, you know, it was pretty good. <laughs> and then, you know, some of the other movies about slavery came out. They were like, man, I kept waiting for Django to ride in. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, you know, Sam Jackson's character in that is such a standout. Yeah. I mean, he's just so evil and it's so beautiful to watch. Well, this is, you know, the importance of a committed actor, right? Because you're playing the worst guy ever, you know, uh, Stephen. Uh, and Sam never tried to soften it. He just leaned in on it. Well, there's that one moment, right, when we're really first meeting him, mm-hmm. and he's like, you know, when 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 uh, when Leo comes back, mm-hmm. and he's like, "I missed you like a baby misses its bottle. I missed you like a rock in my shoe." Mm-hmm. And the Leo character kind of gets it. He's kind of like, "What?" And like, forget that I said that. And I, as the audience, I'm like. What, what did he just <laughs> sass him like just shade on yes. like, right in front of him? Yes. I'm like, mean, would he have done that? Would he be shading him, or would he be like, no, I am fully yours, and that's all good? No, it's 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 like uh, like the character in Gone with the Wind. You know, it's like I'm teasing you, I'm joking, but yeah, I'll get a little, I get, I'll get a little subliminal in, and but at the end of the day, he is Candyland. He runs the plantation. I mean, there's a reason people go. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Why did the the movie end up with this fight between two black men? And I go, because they're the two smartest characters. (laughs) I mean, like, it ended up being the two most powerful people having to face off. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's what's going on. Mm -hmm. I mean, Sam's character is evil. 
And yes, he may have contempt for his master. I mean, he can love his master and have contempt at the same time because mm. you know human interaction is complicated. I mean, it 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 you know so much of the film to me is about uh, the colonized mind. Sure. And you know, Django when he throws off the blanket in that first scene, mm-hmm. and his body language changes. And it's like right there, he destroys the colonized mind. And throughout the film, there's this recurring sort of visual joke. Like he's walking in or he's riding in on a horse, head high, shoulders back, like a real man. And people are like shocked at the whole scene. Like he's destroyed the colonized mind. And even like the other slaves, the door is open to their cage that they don't leave. Mm-hmm. Right? Because they're like Pavlovian dogs. Like we stay in the cage. and um, And then, of course... Sam Jackson Stephen is the opposite. He's fully owned by the colonized mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he is, he is, he is the most free man as long as he stays in his pen mm. on the plantation. He is free to be the biggest monster on the plantation, mm. right? But of course, he knows once he leaves the property, then he is less than human. Mm. Uh, yeah, and, and, but you know the but the important point is the movie ends with not them simply reacting to white oppression, but you know the horse does a dance and they ride off they ride off in love. In your mind, mm-hmm. what happens to them after that? Oh, we've talked about that in quite some detail. <laughs> I mean, I mean, to the I remember we were still shopping the movie, and Quentin and I were just talking about what would happen next. And about we got about halfway through the movie, then I said, "You're never making this movie. You're just playing with my emotions." <laughs> so let's stop. Um, it's not good. Django doesn't. No, Django does a lot of cool things. Well, look. Well, the fact is. What do you mean? They get captured. They can't win. No, first of all, we there is a sequel. It's a comic book sequel. Did you not read Django Meets Zorro? No. Man, I'm giving you a copy today. Do, please do. <laughs> Come on, they're in Mississippi. We we did it. It's not a literally two minutes later sequel. But we did, we, you know, uh, I hooked Quentin up with Matt Wagner, who's an amazing comic book writer, and the two of them plotted out. Uh, how did he how get free? How did, what do you mean? Like, no one ever escaped from slavery. You're oh, like, how, how can, no, of course, how can such a occur? Come on, they're, they're, they're on horses, which yes. is going, dude, you can't hide that well. That's mm-hmm. going to alert people. Why, mm-hmm. Like, why, they, they're not supposed to be on horses. Black people not mm-hmm. supposed to be on horses at all at that time. Mm-hmm. They're in deep Mississippi. Mm-hmm. How, how they, how? it would, it, it's probably an amazing adventure how they escaped, huh? It would probably, Fill up a whole movie in itself, wouldn't it? <laughs> okay. 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 You told me mm-hmm. that there was about twice as many niggas in the movie, the word, before, you know, and you got him to cut about half of them. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, clearly... <clears throat> You know, the movie, you know, the use of the word is meant to shock and be provocative, right? Because, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of debate, obviously, over the word nigger, period, <laughs> aside from the movie. And, you know, 
has hip hop been successful in normalizing it? Should it be normalized? There's clearly there's a big generational split. Folks at NAACP said no, should not normalize it. it. Needs to be buried. Young people are like, screw you. We have a different attitude. But now there's a whole generation past that generation. Um, but I thought what was interesting about the film is that it reconnected you to the origin of the word, and suddenly, nigger, nigga, whatever you want to say, is not cute in its original context. Mm. It is harsh and horrible. And that's good. And when you see people, you may say, well, maybe that one isn't so bad. No, they're, they're, they're all bad. Every single person here is really <laughs> awful. Um, so, I mean, after Django, mm-hmm. your stock in Hollywood rises mm-hmm. tremendously. Mm-hmm. Um, and you end up producing the Oscars. Yeah. How did that come about? Well, it, it started, uh, I've been a member of the Academy for quite some time. But I remember during the nomination process for Django, where, you know, you're going to all these different events. And I got approached by someone from the Academy who said, we want you to be more involved in the Academy. I said, I want to be more involved. So they said, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, there's a thing I've been wanting to do for a long time. I love the Hollywood Bowl. It's my favorite place to go hear music. And I love moving at the Hollywood Bowl where they'll show the sound of music and the live orchestra playing live in sync with the movie. And I said, well, I want to do that with black music, right? With all the awesome black soundtracks. So I put together this show called the Salute to Black Movie Soundtracks. And it goes all the way from the jazz age to in the heat of the night and Shaft and Superfly and you know, sparkle and, you know, all the way to contemporary uh, music. And we have guest artists. We have Gladys Knight. We have Earth, Wind & Fire. We have Full Force. We have Common. Uh, You know, it's a show that people flip out over. And you're just doing this because you want to. Yes. This is not, I'm going to do this and then. No, it's it's okay. Here's the thing. Again, you sometimes you say, so so somebody needs to do so-and-so. And you look to your left and you look to your right and there's no one else. That means it's your job, right? So I'm like, I've been going to the Hollywood Bowl for 15 years and no one has done this show. I guess it's up to me. And they just said, what do I want to do? So basically they just said, hey, do you want to do that show we haven't heard you pitch yet? So I pitched them and they said, that sounds great. Then I went to the Hollywood Bowl. They said, that sounds great. So I made a show exist that, that didn't exist. And I did it because I wanted to go to the show. But having done it, it's literally the thing that people love most. I mean, I've done a lot of cool things in my career, but people are like, oh, my God, they love the Hollywood Bowl show. So, I mean, I've done it twice now. I'm going to do it again in 2018. And people love that show. And it's also one of those things where it's, like again, like me doing comic books. When you do something very personal, right, that has complete artistic integrity people go wow that says who that person is i want to work with the person who does stuff like that right so you know it's not done uh it's done for pure pleasure but it makes people let it lets people know who you are and makes people who are like-minded want to work with you 
So you produced two of those, and then the Oscars came about? No, I, I, oh God, I can't remember the sequencing now. Uh, I did one, right? And then after that show, they said, you know, you should produce the Governor's Awards. And the Governor's Awards are a set of honorary Oscars that are given out at the beginning of the award season. And uh, I had already, you know, I was aware of it because I had been kind of calling friends of mine like, wouldn't it be great if Harry Belafonte won an honorary Oscar? I mean, he's almost an EGOT. I mean, he's just one award short. So Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony, EGOT. Yes. So all he lacked was the Oscar. And then he was there. So I ended up producing the show the year that he, in fact, got his honorary Oscar, along with many other fantastic filmmakers. It was a really an amazing night. And it was a great show. I did a lot of things that no one had ever done with that show. So people really loved. They were like, wow, you did this Hollywood Bowl show. That was great. You did this Governor's Awards. And we really loved that. Uh, So then kind of people stopped talking, right? So you know you're on a list, right? And it's not spoken of, right? It's just there, right? So... I'm not going to, you know, lobby for it. You're right. It's is, just, it, is it like becoming the Pope? Like you don't lobby for it? You kind of lay back? Well, no, I mean, I'm sure there are people lobbying, but I just didn't want to. It's like, clearly, like, you, you know who I am, right? So then the producers who had done the show said they did not want to do it. So then you go, oh, okay. So uh, the producers who, who had, had done the Oscars over the last couple of years had said, okay, we've done three years. That's enough. So... Then I get called in for a meeting, right? And you kind of talk about the Oscars. Then they go, great, talk with you. We'll get back to you. So then more time passes, right? And then you get a phone call and they go, okay, you and this other guy are going to produce the Oscars. You need to meet for this afternoon and we're going to do a deal and we're going to announce it on Monday. You go, whoa, that's it? You know, that's it. And that's it. And then you're doing the Oscars. And uh, so uh, we do the Oscars, which is an unbelievable experience, right? It's completely immersive. Uh, You're working with the absolute best in the business. And um, it was a lot of fun. Oh, stop. (laughs) Stop with it's a lot of fun. You had a great show. Thank you. But it was a hell of a year it was a hell of a year you 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 sign up chris rock yes but the oscars so white movement yes kicks in yes before the show jada pinkett smith and your old friend spike lee are boycotting the show we're not going Mm -hmm. there's a lot of noise in the black community on twitter and on Mm -hmm. media of the oscars are too white what Mm -hmm. is going on uh you know there's there's a lot of problems and you have white people saying they're being racist against whites right so this whole storm is brewing and you're running the ship it it's it's not just fun it's this is this is complex it's complex but you know what the year after someone asked me would you rather have done it that year you did the Oscar So Wake controversial year or the year after. I go, there's no doubt I'd rather have done the Oscar So White year 
because the only person who could have done that show that year was me. Mm. Because of the crisis, I was able to work with a lot of really good people to make some real changes in the academy. Well, how did you, how did you write the ship? Because it was a crisis moment for Hollywood in particular, right? And my, you know, look, I believe in this the the the, the old saying: never let a, a, a crisis go to waste, right? And you know, the fact is, there were a ton of really talented people who were not members of the Academy that should have been members of the Academy. And there was nothing to do about the nominations of that year. But I think what Hollywood and the world needed to know was that they would never be this kind of uh, overlooking of worthy performances and work again. That the Academy would make meaningful changes to correct that. And there were a bunch of folks um, who wanted to do that within the Academy. And, you know, because I had no problem speaking about it in a very direct way and talking about it uh, and, you know, gathering, you know, a working group of folk with a lot of great ideas where suddenly we had this uh, meaningful change you know, of how the Academy was structured and the memberships and all kinds of big and small things, which had the cumulative effect of the following year, where all of a sudden you've got all these incredible performances nominated, incredible films nominated, and no one looked at those performances and those films and said, oh, they're just in there because they're black. Everyone said, wow, the best movies of the year and the best performances of the year are nominated. And that's because something was broken and it got fixed. Mm. And I was at the table. And it's important to have people in the streets, but you can't you can't maximize the leverage of what those folks are doing in the streets if someone's not at the table. It's hard to have fundamental change in important institutions without someone at the table. Exactly. So, and the thing is, you know, and I'm all, I mean, I, I mean, there's this <clears throat> presumption that folks who don't understand power have where like where if you're at the table is because you, you've you're compromised not, you're not sold willing out. to go hard so, no i just i'm at the table i'm at the table because i go hard i've gone hard my whole career so i have no problem going hard here and you know and there's no downside i mean the worst thing has already happened so all we can do is make things better yeah so are you i mean there is a fundamental difference we see in the way the oscars are voted on and the way it looks and you were all up in that yeah i mean i can't talk about it in detail because it's pro- I understand i'm a government academy and you know the year you did mm-hmm. did the growing critique from outside which you agreed with to a certain extent mm-hmm. did it change the show that you were putting on did you put on a different act did something i mean i know chris on his own, being Chris, he's like, well, I'm going to do a different well, stand-up, but did it, did it change? Well, the, the main thing, and this was before we knew the nominations, but we suspected it may not go well. 
<laughs> I the main thing I, was, I, I, I said to the Academy, I said to the Oscar organization, I said, look, the best thing we can do is not pretend like it's okay. And, you know, the fortunate thing is what we booked Chris Rock immediately. And I think we should just let Chris Rock be Chris Rock. And that'll be, there'll be no better commentary on what's going on than what Chris will say and do, which is what happened. And, you know, and to have that understanding before the crisis happened uh, was important because when the crisis happens, things have to move fast. Mm. I, and, and, you know, maybe you don't want to talk about this, which is fine, but mm -hmm. I, I remember Sasha Baron Cohen surprised you. Yes. And mm -hmm. you don't want to be surprised when you're in the control room producing a live show like that, that a billion people are watching. Yeah, you don't want to be surprised. I mean, you know, and, you know, <laughs> we had talked to Sasha. We were like, look, you know, you're, you're a brilliant comedian. You know, if you want to rewrite your own material, you want to do whatever, like we are down with it. We're not here to kind of stick you in some cookie cutter thing. Uh, but, you know, he wants to he wants to be bold. He wants to be transgressive. So, you know, uh, we were looking for him and then they were like, we can't find Sasha. They're like, he's been in the bathroom for a while. We're like, oh, he's putting on an outfit. And then we went to look for him and he was on stage. And? You know, he did a bit, probably not a bit we would have said was cool. <laughs> I'd upset some people, but, you know, the world keeps spinning. When you're in the control room, because are, are you in the control room or no, are you backstage? My, my 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 partner was in the control room. I was backstage. And as you're watching this happen, because mm -hmm. that was that the most out of control moment of the show for you? No question. I mean, the minute... Uh, you know, he went missing. I called the control room and I said, Sasha's getting ready to do something. So you need, you guys need to be prepared. And literally, as I was saying the words, he was on stage. And what are you thinking? Because this is very scripted mm -hmm. show mm -hmm. and this moment is getting away from you. And mm -hmm. there's not that much that you can do when he's on the stage. No, I mean... So what are you thinking? What are you feeling? Well, now you just... You just are watching it unfold, right? And you're like, you know? <laughs> so you're like, okay, what's he going to say? What's he going to do? Is it, you know, is it going to be offensive? Is it going to be dangerous? I mean, you know, so you see it and it happens and then it's over. So you're okay. And the world of bad things, I mean, you know. Sure. We couldn't, <laughs> we wouldn't have imagined how bad things could go. You know, I mean, you go, okay, there's a bunch of bad things that could have happened. In the world of bad things, that was... In the world of bad things, mm -hmm. having been in that chair, can you understand how the final award of the night, the wrong envelope, could be handed to the presenter? Well, I mean, obviously there's been, you know, an enormous amount of kind of research about, you know, how all the systems failed. It, 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 it's, it's pretty shocking. It's a pretty shocking result. I mean, it's like, wow, because there are many fail-safes. <laughs> I mean, it's fortunate that they figured it out so quickly. 
Because yeah. it could have been that the show closed and then they figured it out, and then and now and then how do you even deal with that? Yeah, it it, it was really a a tragic moment. Uh, it's it, you know, and I really credit the producers of La La Land. I mean, because they were incredibly gracious, gracious they were. and how they managed the situation that was a, a stunningly impressive moment but it was it was tragic for both parties mm-hmm. uh and you know i'm a fan of both films and both filmmakers and you just that's just that's just a terrible moment yeah for 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 everyone uh and i just felt really bad you know and look when i was just in the audience watching the show you know, and all of a sudden you see people with headphones on stage. You go, oh, headphones. Yeah. That's not okay. That's not. <laughs> oh, what and the? they're running quickly. Something's wrong. Headphones running. Not good. Um, So you recently made a film mm-hmm. about Thurgood Marshall as mm-hmm. an attorney. Yes. Before he makes it to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, And he's, well, I won't tell the whole plot. But uh, you know, I, you let me come to the script, to the set and mm-hmm. see you guys in Buffalo making it. Mm-hmm. And the question I was exploring in that the couple of days I was there is, what does a director actually do? Mm-hmm. And it, did you figure it out or no? I mean, it's kind of. You know, kind of. I mean, you know, it was interesting <laughs> seeing you. Mm-hmm. You know, you would a, a take would happen. And then you would calmly sort of wander over to the actor mm-hmm. and have a very quiet discussion, mm-hmm. you know, and then leave. And then you do it again, mm-hmm. you know, and you spend a lot of time too talking to your DP. Mm-hmm. And so more time talking to the DP than the actors. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it seemed that I, I you, not entirely. No, I didn't entirely well, figure it well, out. Well, I mean, because I mean, watching a director on set is just seeing such a tiny portion of the job, right? That's like, like, what does a writer do? I saw you signing books in Barnes and Noble, and I don't get it. Are <laughs> 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 you okay? You're talking to people. You seem to be clever in your chit chat, <laughs> but you're like, no, I was in a room for a year or right? two so <laughs> so it's the same thing you know so it's it's hey i've got this movie about thurgood marshall so there's a threshold decision there am i interested in a movie about thurgood marshall or not and then you read the script and then you go is is making a movie not about his life but instead focusing on one case and not a famous case, not Brown versus Board of Education, but a relatively obscure case uh, in his career. Is that a good idea? And then you go, so if you like the idea of Thurgood Marshall, you like the idea of not taking the obvious approach, that's two giant decisions. And then there's a decision of, well, is the, is the, should the movie be called The Trial of Joseph Spell? And you go, uh, no, that's not a movie I'm going to pay 15 bucks. But if you call it Marshall, like it's a Western, because he goes into town and he dispenses justice, then that's a good idea. Mm. Right? So, so all those, and then you go, okay, well, what's the balance of Thurgood Marshall in the movie versus, you know, his white colleague? You know, you don't want to go cry freedom 
<laughs> so, you know, figuring out the, 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 the math of that, that's complicated. Then there's the casting of the film. And then you just go, okay, well, who should play these roles? Uh, then you put together a crew. And, you know, and, you know, in the case of the DP, Tom Siegel, brilliant guy. And Tom and I knew each other from sort of the respective beginning of each other's career. But we wanted to work together and never had the chance. And now this is the chance. And he's done all these huge X-Men movies. And it's like, how do I convince Tom to make a movie about a real superhero and get on board and talk about how we're going to work together? And then there's the work. You know, every Sunday we get together and talk about the week's work and how we want things shot, how we want things to feel and all that. Uh, then I get together with the actors and we rehearse. So when we get on the set, you know, shooting a 140-page script in 30 days, you know, you don't have time to be figuring it out. You got to have a pretty clear roadmap. So what you saw was the end product where I can saunter over and say a few words to the actors, but the actors are so good, they don't need a lot. Uh, and, you know, talk to the DP about what you want to do the same or what differently. But, you know, the bulk of the work has been done. When you're on set talking to, uh, when you're on set talking to actors, mm -hmm. what generally is the sort of conversation? Like, we've done a couple of takes. Mm -hmm. Well, it can, it can be... Because yeah. you said it was there was a balance. You mm -hmm. don't want to give them too many notes to where they're thinking about what you said and acting mechanically. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you know, sometimes you want to go, we got that approach. Do you want to try something different? Or why don't you hit that word with a little more emphasis? You know, uh, it may be a pacing note. Uh, and maybe uh, why don't you look behind you when you say that? You know... Again, uh, I mean, you know, the great thing, we had an unbelievable cast of actors. So they had impeccable instincts. So sometimes it's just more giving, letting them know things that they can't see because they don't see the shot or giving them permission to try different things. Young filmmaker, mm -hmm. what does he need to know? What is the advice that he needs to hear? was very interesting. Uh, I was on the set of this TV show I'm producing. We're doing a revival of Showtime at the Apollo for Fox. So we're in the control room. We're going to start shooting in 15 minutes. And I get a phone call from Roland Martin. I go, what's Roland calling about? But, you know, Roland's my friend. So I step out of the booth and I take the call. And Roland says, I'm here with my niece. She says she wants to be a filmmaker but I've given her all this equipment. She hasn't shot anything. She says she doesn't want to start shooting until she gets to film school. And I tell her that's ridiculous. So I get on the phone and I say, listen to your uncle. You're being ridiculous. Do whatever he tells you to do. And <laughs> I'm in the middle of a shoot, but I got on the phone because I respect your uncle Roland that much. That should tell you everything you need to know. So... So the lesson for a young filmmaker is... Start shooting. You have in your pocket a phone that is better than most of the equipment I had when I was a young filmmaker. There is no reason why you can't take your phone and make a movie. So, like, 
you know, and there's no reason why you can't go online and learn everything, uh, you know, learn a huge amount about, you know, how to make movies and, you know, things to make movies about. So, you know, live life, pay attention, understand people and make stuff. The more stuff to make you make, it's push-ups, you know, making stuff. The, the more you do it, the better you'll get at it. And right. And don't be afraid of making bad stuff. Just make stuff. Well, you could, I think in life, one of the mistakes that people make, this is a, not just a film advice thing, is that we get better and better at what we're good at. And that's what we focus on, right? Mm. When you're a kid, you play baseball, then you play the piano, then you draw a picture, right? And you don't think about it because you're just doing stuff you think is cool. And then you figure out, I'm not a good baseball player, but, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at the piano. And, uh, you know, so you just focus on getting better and better at what you're good at. So I think all of us every year should try a new thing and have no fear about being bad at it. It's okay to be bad. It's the art of learning a new thing that makes you better. Mm, and learning how to learn. Yes. So I recommend that. Even if you are an accountant, even if you are a cartographer, whatever you may be, trying and learning new things. What is your advice on or your understanding of how one makes it in Hollywood? Well, it's, you know, you know, I've seen good and bad times in Hollywood. Right. And right now there's um, there's an explosion with streaming media. Right. There's, you know, all the stuff being made for YouTube or being made for Hulu or Netflix or Amazon. And of course, there's all the television networks and cable networks and movie studios. So if you're good at something, you can probably get a job. So work hard at being good at something. Have something to offer because, you know, everyone's working really hard. So can you make someone's life easier but because you're good at something and you can take that weight off them? That's what you need to do. You need to figure out how to be of use. Uh, I remember uh, at BET, there was this intern. He was from Alabama. We didn't know it at the time, but he just, when he heard about the internship at BET, he drove from Alabama to LA and he slept in his car. And he got the internship, thank God. And <laughs> how could you say no after that? Well, I didn't know. We didn't we just gave him it then we found out the story later. Oh, okay. So he would deliver the mail in the morning and he go, Do you need anything? I go, I'm fine. And then at the end of the day, because we would work late, you know, like seven, eight o'clock, he'd still be there. You need anything? I'm like, No, I'm fine. And why are you still here? Oh, it's okay. And then at night I'd be on my computer, and then he would pop up in an instant message, You need something? I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> you're everywhere and so at the end of the internship i said if we don't give this kid a job we're terrible people because <laughs> he is there he's making it happen he is making himself indispensable so you need to be like him i mean I, one day i will work for him i have no doubt about that <laughs> and that's fine with me he's earned it um but i mean there's there's an there's a particular art to making it in Hollywood, just interpersonally. Mm -hmm. the The town, as it's called, has its own ways, its own mores. It is a small 
culture mm-hmm. and there's a particular way that you have to deal with people to get ahead, right? Well, you know, I think being a good person is underrated. You know, everyone goes, oh, you know, Hollywood, you know, you got to be an asshole and da, da, da. And it's like, yes, there are successful assholes and there are successful good people. And, you know, obviously they're not as lauded. Uh, they're not as interesting to write about in gossip columns or whatever. But there are good people who are very successful. So, you know, and being a good person doesn't mean being run over or being a doormat. It just means like just having a moral compass. There's nothing wrong with that. So being honest, being fair, not being mean, those are very attractive qualities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you when are you gonna make that George Clinton movie? I'm working on it. <laughs> I mean, literally, I, it's. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, there's there's a uh, a producer I was talking to who was like, you know, he brought me in to talk about another script. I'm like, hey man, I love you. I don't want to do that movie, but you and I both love George Clinton. He was like, you know, you're right. So I was like, why don't we do that instead? So we'll see. Um, what is, I mean, on this, we always talk to people about failure and rebounding from failure. Mm -hmm. So what do you think is your biggest moment or period of failure in Hollywood? And how did you rebound from that? Well, you know, you fail all the time in Hollywood. You can have little failures. You can have big failures. You can be in movie jail where you can't get a directing job. Or What puts you in movie jail? Huh? What puts you in movie jail? If you make movies that don't make money and they go, you know what? That's just a bad bet. No one wants to bet on you. That feels like a bad investment. It's not an unreasonable thing. How do you get out of movie jail? You just have. That's the thing. Right? Were you in movie jail? Oh, I was in movie jail. What did what what put you in movie jail? Making movies that weren't good. With serving Sarah? Serving Sarah and and then Ladies Man. It's a bunch of movies that like, well, why why does that movie exist? And you go, Yeah. And you know, I lost I mean, I lost my voice. And um you just have to find your voice and you have to find your purpose and you know, you have to focus on the art. So you do things on whatever level. You know, I wrote comic books and I wrote comic books with complete integrity. And the, people read those books and they're like, wow, well, there is the Reggie I know. Look at that. And then that comic book got turned to an animated series. They go, yeah, now that's the Reggie I really love, that guy. And then, you know, at the same time, I'm working in television and, you know, everybody's like, well, you know, Reggie works really hard. And every time he works, comes to work on our show, the show gets better like how does this guy like the show's a hit show but his episodes are the best episodes so there's something about him that makes it better so so you have to counteract the people who are going he he did not help with a bunch of people who say no 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 he does he he's an additive he makes things better and you just have to do that in any and every format work Work, work your way out of a bad situation by making good work. Mm. Finding your voice, rolling up your sleeves, doing good work, putting good reputation 
chips out there to counter right you go yes that happened that was not good and i've learned from that mistake and you can tell from all the work i've done since that that i have learned from that mistake and now i'm an even better investment because i'm not the cocky guy who's never failed i know success and i know failure i know all those things and i know it from you know from the creative side no from the executive side I have a real knowledge base. And from that knowledge base, I will make this work no matter what. So having failed becomes a good thing. Yes, because, I mean, failure is inevitable. It's not like, oh, oh, you failed. It's like, yeah, and what happened when you failed? Right. I mean, it's, look, we've heard it all before. Nine times down, ten times up. You know, is your ability to come back. That is what defines who you are as a person. Are you a punk? Did you get punched in the nose and did you go cry in a corner? Or did you go, wow, you broke my nose. I'm going to have to get up and kill you. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. So I'm always trying to kill people. The man was stuck in movie jail, unable to get anything made, unable to do what he loves, until he put in the long, quiet work of repairing his reputation. We are a reputation-based society. Everything rests on it. Once Reggie repaired his, he was able to get back to making films. Now he's working with Morgan Freeman. I think he's back. I hope you got a lot out of this conversation. Thanks to Reggie for the time and the candor, and thanks to you for listening. If you want to talk to me more about this show or anything else, I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Chris Colbert in association with Cadence 13 Studios. We're coming to you from the amazing borough of Brooklyn, the baddest place in the world. We'll be back next week with more knowledge from successful folks because the man ain't shut us down yet. Join us next Wednesday for a really special episode of Torre Show featuring my conversation with my little sister. She's the chief medical officer of the Hoboken University Medical Center in New Jersey. She's an emergency room doctor. And it was amazing to listen to a doctor talk candidly about their work, especially one who makes me so proud when she talks about the mindset that helps her excel in the emergency room. It's really fun to me to feel my heart racing and my mind is slow and that's the best part is like so i know inside me my my sort of biophysical reaction is correct yeah of okay here we go yeah but at the same time my mind is sharp and clear and i can see everything that's happening everything that needs to happen and whatever is the next step i got it the little sister runs a hospital and oh my god she's crushing it episode premieres next wednesday on torre show